Megan. Yeah. Do you hear that? What? That? You hear that? <laughs> Megan, please insert lightning here. Oh. Here uh, too. Rumble. It's a tempest. Crash. Oh. You put a lot of work into that, Derek Jarman. Welcome to Avant Bard, a podcast where two theater nerds explore the highest highs and the lowest lows of works inspired by that upstart crow himself, William Shakespeare. My name is Matthew James Marquez, and I use he, him pronouns. My name is Megan Charlo, and I use she, her pronouns. Once again, we did not start the episode with quotes. Because once again, we're doing a direct adaptation of one of Shakespeare's works. We are here today on Avant Bard to discuss someone who fits the bill of being avant-garde. Derek Jarman. Do you know who Derek Jarman is, Megan? You don't. No, let me say what I know about him. Okay. He's gay. Yes. He made this film. Yep. So Derek Jarman, in his life, was a British gay activist a filmmaker, a stage designer, an artist, and almost every title you could think of. He is most associated with the British punk scene, but was also obsessed with Britain's renaissance, which I don't know if you know, Megan, includes William Shakespeare. What? His film Caravaggio is based on the renaissance painter, he made an adaptation of Christopher Marlowe's Edward II. And in fact, he has a whole movie where Judy Dench recites sonnets. That's cute. That is the Angelic Conversation, released in 1985, in case you wanted to know. He also directed this adaptation of William Shakespeare's The Tempest, which was released in 1979. Jarman loved The Tempest for its themes of forgiveness and actually originally envisioned this film as a stage adaptation, as he was, like I mentioned, a stage designer. His goal was to create a balance of stage and film in his production and avoid what he saw as a stuffiness that usually was a part of stage productions of The Tempest. And speaking of The Tempest... The Tempest is widely considered to be one of William Shakespeare's final plays, although there is no good date that we have for The Tempest besides that it was probably written from 1610 to 1611, but we just don't know. Megan, what are your thoughts on The Tempest? Because I have a lot. I think that The Tempest is incredibly overrated. I think that it's a great show if you want to do magic tricks during a Shakespeare production. And that's about the only thing I like about stage productions of The Tempest. So if they don't do magic, you're like, why did I buy a ticket? I have a complicated relationship with The Tempest uh, because it was the first Shakespeare play I read. And so I was pretty much in love with <gasps> Oh, the Brave text. New World! Basically, I was Miranda. Yeah, I just read it in a book that it was a good play. I read it in a book that it was a good play. And so my like 11 year old brain was like, aha, I will be smart 
and I will read a William Shakespeare because I was a shitty, gifted program 11-year-old who thought he was super smart and can read anything. I was really into Shakespeare at a young age, but it was more watching performances. And that's fair. That's the same thing as reading it. Yeah. But I don't think I encountered The Tempest really like I knew of it, but I don't think I saw The Tempest until college, probably. Yeah, so here's the thing about The Tempest, Megan. When you read it and you don't know anything about colonialism, you're like, it's just about this old wizard who lives on this island who has spirits at his command and he forgives his brother. But then you grow up and you read it again and you're like, this is A, boring, B, fucked up. Yeah. And you take a look at the character of Caliban and you go, Mmm, I'm a person of color. Something about this really feels bad. So that's my current feelings about The Tempest. So not my favorite. I still have a fondness for it in my heart of hearts because I don't know how many things have you watched when you were younger and then you go back and you watch again and you're like, yikes. A lot. Well, okay, Megan, I think it is now time for me to go into my acting. I think I'm going to take it this time. Megan, you don't know actors. No, but you don't know these actors either. Fair. All right, so I'm going to do some deep, deep research. Okay. Oh, wait, Megan, do you want me to cut until you've uh, done it? Because it might take a while for you to do Right, right, right. Okay. It usually takes me about an hour to research Okay, yeah, so let's just wait for like an hour. I'll come back. Here's my research. Okay, here we are. One hour has definitely passed. So, according to Wikipedia... The guy who plays Prospero, I'm just going to read a sentence that'll tell you everything you need to know about him as an actor. Okay. He wrote a number of book-length polemical poems, including Autogeddon, Falling for a Dolphin, and Whale Nation, which in 1988 was described by Philip Poir as the most powerful argument for the newly instigated worldwide ban on whaling. I think that's really all you need to know about him. Well, Megan, did you know that he was actually not really an actor, but he was a magician? And Derek Charman really didn't want an that's actor interesting. to play Prospero. Okay, so Alonzo, uh. he wrote a book about teddy bears. That's interesting. Moving on. Ferdinand. He has a twin. Well, he was also in another one of Derek Jarman's movies. All I don't right. think if you... Ariel uh, was also in Derek Jarman's stuff. Ah, oh, yes. There's really not much about him, but I think that he looks like the child of a young Ian McKellen and David Bowie. Okay. So that's all on him. Our Miranda is actually kind of cool. She's mostly a singer. That's pretty cool. I dig that. Well, she was in Derek Jarman's previous film, Jubilee. Yeah, but I think it's more cool that in a career spanning more than 40 years, she has had eight top 40 singles. She's a big part of the punk scene. Yeah, she does punk rock, rock, new wave, pop rock, musician, singer, songwriter, actress, producer, author. I appreciate her. I'm not saying any of their names, though. Let's see. Anyone else that's interesting? Oh, our Caliban. He went blind. Next. That's it, Megan? (laughs) That's all you have to say? So he had a passion for ballet. He started going blind. He was blind during this. He was gay. Is he still alive? No, no, he died 10 years ago. I think he did some sort of magic or something. I'm scrolling too fast on this Wikipedia page. Man, I feel like you're making a mockery of the actor corner. The actor corner is a sacred space. 
in which we celebrate actors that Elizabeth Welch shows up in this film. She's a singer, and I don't understand why she's in this film, but I respect her. See, the thing is, Megan, that the actor corner I actually put in here so that we celebrate... The guy who plays Stefano was in the BBC sitcom Porridge, and I like the name of that show. I can't tell you anything about Sebastian because he does not have a Wikipedia page. Megan. Yeah, what's up? Megan. Oh, same with Trinkula. I'm sorry. There's one more person who's really important in this movie. So this last really important person is Helen Wellington Lloyd, who is also called Helen of Troy, and she's an actress from South Africa, and she's a famous follower of the Sex Pistols. Yeah? Who does she play, Megan? One of the spirits. You know that um, in the actor corner, I don't go through the complete cast. Yeah, but there's only like 10 people in this. Yeah, but, you know, also... That's everyone. Now I know how you feel. Can we talk about the film now? (sighs) I guess. We begin the film as Shakespeare intended with Blue. So what we see is stock footage of ships in storm. Wait, that was stock footage? That was stock footage, not shot for the film. I mean, that makes sense. There were a lot of different types of ships in that footage, Megan. That's true. Let's be honest. I was just like, yes, there's a storm. I know. I've read the play. There's also heavy breathing over the credits as well, which Megan was not about. No, I don't like hearing breathing. It makes me think that something is wrong. And you could hear the lines that are at the beginning of The Tempest. Wait, you could? Yeah. I couldn't make them out, but I knew that they were there. You know, like the, Oh, say goodbye to my wife and children, all lost, all lost. But it was like this. Say goodbye to my wife and children, lost, all lost. Other lines from The Tempest. Bosun. Yeah, it was so quiet. One of my notes was just, I literally can't hear anything right now. And I was really sad because I turned up the volume and I still couldn't hear it. And I have some issues with auditory processing. And that was just going to be my life for this film. And that's kind of upsetting because I feel like I missed... You definitely missed things, Megan. And that's not your fault. I'm not blaming you that you missed things. No, because it's not something I can do anything about at this point in my life. This is not the film for people with auditory issues or attention span issues. Definitely not for those people. Because it's kind of a hazy movie and nothing really feels concrete which does lead into a very dreamlike state that I think Derek Jarman is trying to evoke. But also, just because you're trying to evoke a hazy experience does not mean you should alienate your audience in doing so. Yeah, it wasn't very accessible, is the main thing I'll say. Because if it weren't for the fact that I've read The Tempest and I've been in a production of The Tempest and I've seen The Tempest before, I probably would have no idea what the plot is of the film. Yeah. And that's sad. Well, that's the end of Avant Bard. Thank you for listening. (laughs) No, just kidding. So then Prospero wakes up. He wakes up like in a sitcom where... A person has a bad dream, and then they're like, glad that didn't happen. I don't get that. 
So he wanted this to happen. Right. So why does he seem scared or shocked? Because it's a storm, Megan. Okay, but that's what he wanted to yeah, happen. Yeah, I don't get it, Megan. We also see Miranda here. Miranda is laying sideways in her bed and she is so perfectly placed. This literally looks like a Renaissance painting. And I think it's the most beautiful shot of the entire film is just her right before she wakes up. And this is like, what, less than five minutes in? So, Prospero, what does he look like, Megan? He looks like that one doctor from Doctor Who who's got the very, very floofy hair. The long scarf boy? Yeah. Tom Baker. Yeah, that's what he looks like. He looks like Tom Baker lived on an island for a while. A lot of people have connected that actually because that's what he looks like yeah i mean this was a movie that came out in britain in 1979 the doctor was a big part of culture so i think it would be remiss not to mention it yeah so he looks like a weird wizard man in a scarf with wild hair wild eyes just wild yes and we see miranda as well Whose hair is weird. It's so weird. Is it braids, Megan? Is it like... It's in braids sticking out in every direction with gems or pearls tied on strings to the ends? I thought they were paper, Megan. Well, because it's like thread with some sort of bobble at the end of it. We'll put a picture of it in the show notes. I have a few things about this, Prospero. Yeah. Like I said before, Derek Jarman was obsessed with the Renaissance. And one of the major figures of the Renaissance was Dr. John Dee, who was an alchemist in Elizabeth's court. I think that Derek German really was obsessed with this idea of courtly magicians and shit during that time. And he's taken a lot of aspects of that. Another interesting aspect of this adaptation Again, we here on Avant Bard celebrate strong choices, but most of the island in this tempest is a British manor with a bunch of trash and anachronistic paraphernalia all over it. There's just an eclectic group of items. Yes. Like, ah, a hobby horse. Personally, I really like this choice. I don't know what it says, but at least it makes this unique. It's not just an island. It has a very specific location. If I had to describe this to someone, I at least could, which I like. Megan, were you about to say, could you? No, I was thinking more, oh man, I really got the feeling like beaches are probably more expensive because you have to rent them out. And if you just have one location for most of your film, it's a lot cheaper. You're not wrong. They chose this location because they didn't have much money for this film. And they could do so much with this location. We will say a lot of things about this film in terms of production quality. I just want to make it clear, this is a independent film and was using the technology of 1979. I still think that our opinions are valid in that the production value leaves something to be desired just because I think that making things understandable and accessible trumps the budget and the time period. I understand that they didn't have a lot of money, but at the same time, the choices that they made did not help. The technological difficulties, they only enhanced them. 
we are introduced to Ariel, who takes a really long time to actually show up after being called in person, and I appreciate that. I think Ariel's characterization shows some of the strongest choices in this whole film. So Ariel's my favorite character in the film, while in the play I honestly don't care that much about Ariel. I love Ariel. Ariel's my favorite character. I don't really care about anyone in The Tempest. That's right. I'm gonna be honest. You know who I care about? Trinculo, because I played Trinculo one time. But the first thing that we know about Ariel is that when they're called, they take a long time to come. And I think that that's a very simple choice in a very subtle way of showing that, hey, maybe Ariel's not super happy with this situation and doesn't just want to always be at Prospero's beck and call and is doing what they can to not be the perfect little fairy servant. Yeah, small acts of resistance. However, when we do see Ariel, I like how proper Ariel looks in comparison to everything else. Very well dressed, all in white. There's a lot about Ariel that is very well to do, whereas not a lot else is in this production. And I really like that choice. And then we meet Caliban, eating an egg. I have so many problems with Caliban in most productions. I don't know what you're talking about. Because Caliban- Wait, 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 Megan. Wait, 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 wait. What could you possibly have to say about Caliban that is in any way uncomfortable or difficult to discuss? I will just discuss it. I don't care. (laughs) Caliban is a problematic character. So Caliban is a native to the island who Shakespeare frames using really only words that colonialists use to describe indigenous peoples terribly. And he is characterized as a thief and a rapist and all of these terrible things. And he is described as deformed. So maybe he has a physical disability of some sort, but like... It's such a terrible way to view a person that's really only rooted in because he's not a cultured man from where we're from. And I hate it. And in this production, they did the thing where they went, well, we don't want to play too hard on that. So what do we do? We have a guy who acts strange and eats raw eggs. And it's just so difficult and uncomfortable and... It's like taking a play and not saying anything about what the play is saying and just ignoring it and putting a gloss over it. Well, I think if you want to change it because it's terrible, you should do that strongly. You have to acknowledge the uncomfortable colonial aspects of Caliban if you are doing a production of The Tempest or you're ignorant. Yes! (laughs) There is a No in-between. Because Derek Jarman did get criticism because he portrayed Caliban and Sycorax with white people. Granted, the actor who plays Caliban is half Romani, so he is othered in some way that is a minority. They don't address the colonialist nature of Caliban in the film at all. They decide to just kind of conveniently ignore it. (laughs) Like, Caliban is a dick. Yes. And none of us like Caliban through the film, as far as this room goes. But it's not proved to us or thrown in our face that he's a bad person. I view Caliban the same way that I view Disney villains. 
And that is, I know that Caliban is a indigenous person being interpreted by Shakespeare as a monster who is sexually perverse and violent. But again, like Disney villains who are queer coded and it's not great and they are duplicitous. I like Caliban. I want to reclaim Caliban as a character who you want to get the island. (laughs) Much like I love Disney villains. I think that they're fun. I think that they're people I can connect with, even if they come from a gross place. (laughs) I think that there is something to be said about looking at these types of characters and saying, I want them to be good. I want them to be portrayed better. And the text is dead, and we could just erase that if we want, while still acknowledging it. I think that that's a more proper way than just conveniently ignoring the problematic aspects of Caliban. That's been Caliban Corner. When we do other Tempests, I'm sure this conversation will continue until maybe someday... We find a Caliban we like. Oh, I wish. I want to find one. The search for Caliban. I want to find one. I like the character. He's got good lines. But here he's just eating eggs. And like, that's a really weak way to other someone. To be fair, I like how he eats the eggs. See, I don't because he takes a bite of a raw egg and then lets the eggshell fall out of his mouth. And just eats the raw egg. So, like, you could just crack it on your teeth and just crack it into your mouth. You're just doing that to be weird. Yeah. And also, Derek German, have you never seen a bodybuilder? People eat raw eggs. I like how he does it. It's weird. I wish he ate the eggshell. That'd be cool. Caliban does have some good in this movie because he interrupts Prospero's terribly long speeches. And that's one great way that Derek German just cuts the script down. I love it. So Derek Jarman's goal was to cut this script to shreds so that the adaptation was different from everything that you've seen before. And at the beginning of the play, Prospero has this three-page long speech that is him telling Miranda, here's my tragic backstory, and by default, your tragic backstory. What Derek Charman mercifully does is he divides that up into different sections of the movie and doesn't keep it all in one place, which I appreciate. Do I think that he does anything very interesting with the text? Absolutely not. But he at least divides it up. My note on Prospero in this film is just that I really hope That by the time there's a wedding, spoiler alert for those who don't know the Tempest, I just hope that he gets a haircut. I just want his hair to get cut. It's so bad. There's no good wedding portraits from that. Also, Caliban keeps pulling on his pants at the waist whenever they're like, he's lecherous. Then he goes, yup, yup, and he pulls on the waist of his pants. And I think that Derek Jarman should know where a penis is. Because I think that's the area where someone would reference feeling aroused, not their belly button. So I don't know what he's going for, and it helps to very much confuse Caliban's character from my mind. 
those two points aren't really important. They're just aesthetic things that bother me. But the thing that's really bugging me right now in this intro act one section is that this whole film feels like a stage production. You do not need this to be a film. In fact, it definitely looks like it is made for the stage. Well, he did incorporate some stage elements into the film because he wanted to be like a mix in between the two. Why, though? That's always my question. Like, if you're going to make a film... Make a film? Make a film! Yeah. And if you're going to make a stage production, make a stage production. Yeah, if you're making a film, I think that using filmic language is essential. And he basically isn't here. Like we were saying before, with the inaccessibility of this film, it's really because he's treating it like it's a play at certain points. And there are things you can do on stage that you can't do in films effectively. And vice versa. I think Ariel is probably the one character that is hard to go back to a stage version, considering that he pops up in different places and then like mirrors on the wall, which requires like a specific shot angle in order to have his face in the mirror. But I guess you can do that with smoke and mirrors on stage. I was going to say Phantom of the Opera does it. But then we cut to Ferdinand. On the beach. A wild penis appears. It's our first penis! Penis, 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 And that's Penis, penis, penis. You got to sing in ten things. Penis, penis, Marquez's revenge. Penis, penis, penis. That's basically how the whole scene was for our attention spans. If there is a penis on the screen, I'm going to look at it. And I don't have a choice. Not because I'm gay, but because I'm uncomfortable with nudity. And also just because society has taught us That this is a shocking thing. So our brains go, what a shocking development. I will say, though, Ferdinand's kind of a snack. Okay. Ferdinand, Megan, he's kind of a snack. He's got a penis. I can say that. He's cute. I don't know what his face looks like. Oh, because you kept looking at the penis? Yes. I got it, got it, got it. He's cute. I mean, that's all I have to say. He's kind of boring. But, I mean, who hasn't thought a cute boy was boring before? They're not there to be entertaining. They're there to be a snack. So, in the play, Mm -hmm. Ariel has a song Mm -hmm. that he sings. Mm -hmm. And the actor playing Ariel in this film just kind of says the words. I'm going to put my foot down because I actually really like this. What? Why? Okay, no. 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 Are we fighting? We might be. This is our first fight? Here's my thing. He's doing the thing where when you're alone and possibly a kind of broken person, you discordantly sing to yourself because there is a melody, but it's dissonant and like only half there because he's just doing it to himself, not as a performance. And he's just kind of sitting, kind of holding his knees, doing this weird, eerie song. And when I see the play The Tempest, every time that Ariel sings, it's like, Hi, welcome to an uncomfortable or somewhat sad scene. 
And now I'll sing a song for you today because I'm Ariel and I'm okay. And I hate it because it's so jarring. And I'm like, you don't want to be a captive. Why are you singing so happily? Why are you so beautiful and perfect? And this Ariel is very creepy and off. This Ariel is a mood throughout the film. And I just dig it. Ariel is a spirit of air who glides through the world like gusts of wind. Who is trapped by this terrible colonial shithead. You have to do the bidding of a racist shitbird. Here's the thing. I don't think the intention is there. I think that you are reading way more into this than Jarman is putting into it. I think it. that Jarman makes it very obvious that Ariel wants out of this. I agree And that with is that shown point. throughout that. And that includes never showing Ariel as very happy. Here's my hot take. Cut the fucking song. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Number one choice, cut the song. Number Good. two choice, have it be weird and eerie. Okay. Number three choice, do it and I don't like it. Okay. Here's my choice that I would do. Yeah. Have it be like a siren song without showing Ariel. A song on the wind driving Ferdinand in. And you don't have to have it all bright and cheery. But also you don't do whatever the fuck he's doing in this film because I do not like it. I really liked it. I'm okay with the siren song thing as long as Ariel's not on screen because then I think it gets really weird and sexual and then I don't like it. So I like it. Because I like eerie things, and I think it's very eerie. Yeah, shut up, Marquez. Wait, wait, sorry, Megan. You like spoopy things? Yeah. I think this is very haunting and very interesting, and it is a strong, unique choice for this character that I have not seen before, and I appreciate it. So then Ferdinand finds a nice fire to sit at and then makes the decision that he's going to keep a sword, the only object he has to his name, wrapped around his body next to his penis. It's like between his legs. Yes, he keeps it in between his legs, which I don't know. I guess there's some sort of symbolism there about swords and penises, but also don't chop your dick off. So he wandered into Prospero's mansion, went, mm, a hay pile. What a lovely time to naked cuddle my sword. And went to sleep immediately. Ferdinand being naked makes a little bit of sense. Because he washed up from a massive storm. And the storm stripped all of his clothing into nothingness. Yeah, whatever. I at least can understand But none of the other guys on the boat are naked. They're old, Megan. Old people can never be naked. Yep. Storms do nothing to old people who have even less means to hold on to their clothing. The point I wanted to make was, then we see Miranda's boobs. And there is no reasoning why we see Miranda's boobs. She's washing her feet or her dress. Something on the lower (laughs) half of her body. Why are her boobs showing? uh, Megan, I agree. Like, listen, I'm not a person who's like, dick, yes, and boob, no. No, like, hell yeah, boobs. Yeah. why? But why? Besides just like, well, we did a dick. Like, it's fine. I just think that there's like no reason to show this. You can say like, well, he's naked because he washed up on the shore. What, man? I think I realized the reason. Why? What's the reason? It's so that Derek Jarman can show us that Caliban really is a lecherous person. That's gross. I don't like that. Because Caliban comes in 
and starts like laughing and being like, hey, your boobies. But then she like plays along with him. Yeah, right? like she starts laughing and I'm like, okay, Derek, you just told us that Caliban's a lecherous, terrible person, but she seems fine with him. Like, I mean, she seems in to hate him scene. earlier. And then in this scene, when her boobs are actually out and he's like ogling her, she is like laughing about it. Not in an uncomfortable way. I'm very accustomed to the uncomfortable laugh of As a cornered woman. Most women are. Yes. And that was not the laugh that she gave. But then he farts at her. Fair. Why? Because nothing makes sense. So why not? Megan, I want you to know that that scene literally lasts like 20 seconds and then we cut away from it. There's literally no reason to have it except... So, hmm, my thing when it comes to Caliban and Prospero's relationship and Prospero being so shitty about Caliban is I'm like, hey, so is he just terrible? And he's like, I'm saying that Caliban tried to rape my daughter, but he didn't. And I feel like that scene's just in there to be like, well, viewers, I think Caliban actually did do it. Boom. I don't like that take. Boom, 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 boom. Lazy. It's lazy. And it's unnecessary. That's not an argument you need to be making with this film, if that's the reason for the scene, which it's the only thing I can imagine. No, the there's is. no other reason. Unless you just wanted boobies. Then we go back to Ferdinand. Was that just... So that we had time to be like, Ferdinand is fallen asleep. I guess. But Prospero comes in, sees Ferdinand, is like, let me just take that sword out of your crotch area. (laughs) Dangerous. We get the scene. Well, let's be real, Megan. Do we get the scene where Prospero tells Ferdinand that he's working for him? I have no idea. Once again, I couldn't hear anything. This is at a time where... In a scene like this, where neither of the actors are facing the camera, you either need very good ADR work, or you need, like, hidden mics on the set, which they didn't have. So we just have this awkward, mumbled time of Ferdinand putting on clothes and then getting chains on his legs, and it's really long and slow and awkward. I think this is the part of the movie in which everything starts blending together and it starts to go from somewhat confusing to really confusing where we are, what's being said. How much time has passed? Yes. Like this movie is only an hour and a half long, but it felt like 10 years. But also like I got half the plot. Like we're talking about this. I don't even know where my next note came in. But there was a point where Prospero looked like he was going to axe murder Ferdinand. And then it was just like, ha ha, and cutting wood. And I was like, was this a joke? Dark Jarman, did you try a joke? Because it's not a good one. It didn't work. I didn't laugh. (laughs) And I'm just like, oh, Prospero's a terrible person who I think will eventually commit murder. Megan, Prospero's bad. Like, in the text and in this film. Yes. Prospero's a bad person. I do not like the character of Prospero. Okay, we decided. Bad list. Bink. I think part of the reason why I have such a difficult time with the main characters of this is shown really well in this movie because, especially in this production, Prospero and Miranda are like an alien father and daughter who are trying to be humans, and it's just uncanny and not something you can relate to 
And I think that that's in a lot of productions of The Tempest. I think that that's in the text. I think that there's something that you can do with that. I'm sure that one day we will discuss Forbidden Planet, which is the sci-fi Tempest-inspired movie. And we'll we'll discuss that again, because I think that that's a great point that you mentioned. I also want to bring that back to the point we made earlier about Prospero looking like the Doctor, who in the first season of Doctor Who was an old man who's traveling the universe with his granddaughter. Oh. Yeah. So it's kind of like the island is the TARDIS and they're just experiencing things. Doesn't mean it's good or interesting by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a connection you can easily make. So, Megan, tell me about this monkey skull. Oh, so there's a monkey skull. Yeah. Ariel plays with it. I like it. You want a monkey skull, man? <laughs> that yes in monkey? Uh, it means put down my fucking skull. <laughs> wait, wait. Whoa, 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 Megan. That was I the ghost to... monkey speaking through me. Okay. What? Wait, I want to go back before the monkey skull for a second. Derek Jarman does do one thing that I actually really like. In his rearranging of certain parts of the text, he moves lines to places I think fit better. In the text of The Tempest, Ferdinand's like, Prospero, your daughter's so hot, if only I could ever get her. And that's weird. Because he doesn't say Prospero, he just goes, ah, that Miranda. How I sure would like a woman like that. And in this film, Prospero leaves the room, and Miranda leaves the room, and he goes, wow, that Miranda. I sure would like a woman like that. That's obviously not the lines. But I go, much better. So this is the part of the movie in which we discover Ariel's whole deal, in that... After he is done doing Prospero's shit, meaning the end of the play, he gets to go free. I think it's really interesting that I said I really like Ariel, and yet this scene that's all of Ariel's plot, I have zero notes on. He doesn't do much, Megan. I mean, that's why. It's because it's Prospero calling him in, saying, please do this thing. Because you remember, once upon a time, you made me a deal. Yes, Yeah, that's why. Because I hate Prospero, and so since he was on the screen, I was like, nah. So then we meet some old men. Who aren't naked. They aren't naked. But, Megan, they do mention when they arrive that their clothes are dry. This is in the text. Oh, that's right. They mention, like, what happened? We were, like, whisked away from this horrible thing, and nothing bad happened to us. Wait, so question. Yeah. Because that should be true of Ferdinand as well in the text. So in Jarman's adaptation, is he saying that it was Prospero or that it was Ariel who just wanted to see Ferdinand's penis and altered the storm so it would only take off Ferdinand's clothes? Ariel. Okay. So they cut a lot of this scene. It's basically just, here are the old men. And they kind of say who they are. Yeah. So it's like we got Prospero's brother, who's the shitty new Duke of Milan. Oh, just so you know, Prospero used to be the Duke of Milan, but then his brother betrayed him, and then he was going to die, but instead, Gonzalo put him in, like, a coffin with books and his daughter, and put him out to sea where he ended up on this island. Just in case you didn't know the plot of The Tempest. Because this movie sure didn't tell it to me. Nope. But that's who we're with. We're with Gonzalo, the nice one. Mm-hmm. The king, who's just kind of bumbling. Alonzo? Alonzo. Prospero's brother, who's Antonio. I know that because he's one of the Antonios. And then we have the king's brother. Sebastian? Is it Sebastian? That's one of the characters. 
So anyways, it's just a bunch of old men that Prospero wants revenge on, except for Gonzalo, who's a nice guy. And he's just there. He's kind of supposed to be like a bumbling character, but we don't really get that in this version because we don't spend much time with these guys. Which, thank God, because their scenes are the worst thing about this play, in my opinion. Yes, because they're boring. Because they talk so long and all we really want to do is get to the point which is the king's brother says that they should kill the king because the king's brother wants to be king and that's the only important part and it's not even that interesting no so we just cut all that in fact i spent more time on it than Derek jarman did yes and while we were celebrating how much Derek jarman cut he then went back to act one's sections and we went oh (laughs) he put some back That's when we get the Prospero backstory. Yes. So we couldn't be too upset because kind of important to the plot. Yeah. I like this. I do too. It makes more sense for Miranda to ask Prospero, what's our deal after she meets Ferdinand? Yeah, because in the play, it's just like uh, a regular day. Hey, dad, where are we from? Why? What makes her ask this? While now that she's talked to an outsider whose life experience is so unlike hers, she's like, Where am I from? I'm not from this island. Tell me everything. I also do like that Prospero, while he's telling the story, makes Miranda look inside his cool staff, which is like the astronomical symbol for Mercury with a clear glass in the center. It's a really tight prop. It's probably the number one thing from any movie that we've watched that I would like to own in real life. So if anyone has a replica of Prospero's staff from the 1979 version of The Tempest, hit me up. So what bugs me is this is one of the few times that Derek Jarman uses movie magic to do a flashback. And I go, man, I sure wish there were more of these when everyone's talking and it's so boring. So the whole flashback is just like his daughter is slightly on a pedestal or something. And he kneels down next to her and they both smile. And that's it. Megan? Yeah? Megan? What? Prospero kind of looks like a snack in this scene. That's why I'm saying he needs a haircut. (laughs) So the movie proved me right. Yeah, he gets a haircut. He cleans up a little bit. He's looking like a snack. Trinculo and Stefano wash up on the beach. They drunk. I don't know what they're saying, though, because once again, they're too far away from the camera. Also, they're playing drunk, so it's even worse. And then they follow some tracks and discover Caliban, who just lays on the ground. Usually in productions, this whole lead up and payoff to discovering Caliban and these three getting together is a long-ass scene. And it fooled with a lot of physical comedy, a lot of drunken joking. Derek Jarman's just like, I don't want one fucking second more than necessary with these motherfuckers. I'm sad, though, because I don't think they said the whole butt, which is my favorite line in The Tempest. They drank the whole butt. Uh, but honestly, I love these drunk bastards. Man, Why? Why is this the film that the things that I don't like, you like a lot? So here's the thing. These characters are not problematic. They're just some drunk guys. They're cut, so their scenes are short. And one's skinny and one's chubby. I do like the skinny chubby dynamic. I like the skinny chubby comedy duo. Yeah, that's pretty good. It's literally all these characters are. And I'm like, man, I hate most of the characters in The Tempest. Look at these drunken guys. 
I can't fault you, Megan. This scene is usually people's favorite from the original text. People usually like these three together because it injects some humor into an otherwise pretty much humorless play. So I think I was begging for scraps at this point. I was just about to say that. I think that this is like a fucking IV bag injecting fluids into our system as we have been bone dry for anything. Stimulating? Stimulating. That isn't a penis? Yes. And so I think you are correct. I literally wrote the note. Honestly, this is the most I've cared about anyone this whole film. That's sad. And I don't even like them. I think that they're not doing a good job. And like, I don't even think this is really Derek Jarman's fault. I don't think I ever really care about anyone in The Tempest. Because... Well, it is his fault for picking this as an adaptation. Because the thing is, I think the actually least problematic character is Miranda, but she's nothing. So... Who knows? Whenever people bring up Miranda as their favorite character, I'm always like, why? How? What does she do? What? All she does is say, oh, brave new world that has such people in it. I literally can't judge them, though, because my favorite Disney princess is Sleeping Beauty. And then we jump back to 2-1. And the old guys complain about the island. As they head towards the manor. Yeah, why did we cut to this? Why do we need this? To remember that they exist? I don't think we were gonna forget. We just saw them in the last scene. Wait, I think that next we cut again to Trinculo and- No, we don't. We don't? No, because next we cut to 500 years of Miranda walking down some stairs. Hey now, Megan. Hey now. I really like this moment. Marquez. Yes. Do you like this moment? Because Miranda- in the original text, is a nothing of a character, and Derek Jarman tried desperately through having her walk down some stairs a lot to make her into any sort of personality? Yes. So I think this is honestly the most genius thing that Derek Jarman does in this movie. He takes the fact that Miranda was just told that her father used to be the Duke of Milan, and through no dialogue, shows her attempt to be fancy while walking down these stairs, even though everything in this manner is, like, falling apart, and even her dress starts falling apart while she's doing this, but she is attempting to reclaim a past that she didn't know. It's very Anastasia. It is very cute. It is very innocent. And they don't add any modern weird. Listen, I would absolutely love to read an adaptation that is all about Miranda and her point of view with everything. Great. Like, what if she's into books like her father is? It just felt kind of weird to me with all these really quick cuts and huge swaths of the play being cut out. And then we see her do this like 10 times. It's not that many times, but it feels like so many times because... We're focusing on something very specific. Yes. And And it's not in the text. And the text has been butchered, thankfully, so much. So I think that this is an important thing. It just feels somewhat jarring, especially because it is completely silent and it's a moment of just one small thing. I wish there was more moments like this. Yes. I think if this sort of feeling was sprinkled throughout the film, I would care more for the characters and that's all I need. (laughs) Yeah, no, there's definitely a story here that focuses more on Miranda learning how to be a person. We cut back to the Drunkos. That's just what I'm going to call them now. Okay, Team Drunk. Team drunk. So 
Trinculo and Stefano obviously really want to have a threesome. Like I love this, Meg. I love this interpretation. It's not an interpretation. It's there. Because really nothing happens except like, yeah, they're plotting to kill Prospero. But like that's in the background. What they're doing is touching each other, pulling on each other, giggling. And then Stefano jerks off a wine bottle in the background. They're getting ready for a threesome, whether Caliban knows it or not. Here's the thing. I love this because this is playing into something that Derek Jarman touches on in his other films, which is that we have homosocial relationships, and that can lead to homosexual things. Mm -hmm. Like, cracking open a cold one to the boys is something that exists in society, that you have these relationships with other men that aren't sexual in nature, but you have a connection with them. And I think that Derek Jarman is interested in blurring the lines between homosocial relationships and homosexual relationships. Like how some fucking straight boys like to like... Play hump each other. Yes! I'm so glad that I was in this podcast able to connect the wild fact that straight boys like to pretend to hump each other sometimes. And it's like, this is the gayest shit ever. But to them, it's not. It is a homosocial relationship. That is just what guys do. That's boys being boys. Just dudes being guys. I also made another note that has nothing to do with this. Because I know that the actor who played Caliban was blind during this filming, it really stuck out to me the amount of lines that Caliban says that refer to never having seen something like this. It's wild because Caliban is very much like Miranda. He hasn't experienced these things. He thinks that fucking Stefano is the fucking man in the moon just because he says he is. He is tricked into thinking that these people can take down Prospero because he doesn't know anything else. He just interprets things as he sees them. He doesn't have any other context for things. I think that those lines probably have a different feel coming from his lips as someone who can't see. And he's talking about Prospero as a blind mole. And he's himself is actually blind leading them up the stairs. Yeah. But he knows where he's going. Yeah. Because he knows the island. I like that. Actually, Megan, I really like that. I think it's interesting just because Caliban knows a lot about everything that's on this island that's his world yeah even though he is physically blind he is still able to lead trinculo and stefano to where they need to go i think that's very interesting yeah i don't know what that says about anything but it's interesting we cut to miranda going to break out ferdinand she gets the keys from the high shelf that her daddy hid them on so baby girl miranda couldn't reach them then she unlocks him and They fall madly in love because... Because that's what Shakespeare wrote. Here's the thing. Everyone complains about Romeo and Juliet. Like, Romeo and Juliet move over. They had a whole scene together where they connected. They finished each other's sonnets. These people are just like, let me unlock you. Wow. What's your name? Do you love me? Yes. We'll be married. What? You just learned names. This is the worst relationship in Shakespeare. Yes. Because it's nothing. 
Romeo and Juliet get married in secret. Yeah. And they have a very private relationship that we see a lot of. This relationship is all out in the open, basically, in public. No communication really happens. And the father approves. But he doesn't at first. He's like, don't do it. But then he's like, but I kind of want them together at the end. Who cares? There's no reasoning behind Prospero doing things. We cut back to the drunk boys. Stop yelling at Trinculo. He just wants to get laid. That's how I feel about that section with them. That's it. That's it. He's just a little little dandy boy who just wants to have a threesome with his best friend and this new guy. So this might be my favorite scene in the whole movie. So we cut to Ariel and he is clearly nervous and he keeps repeating, remember I have done the worthy service over and over again to himself. At first I was confused about why he was doing this. And then Prospero shows up. He's doing this and he's talking in the mirror and he's like practicing gesticulations to be like, now, now, I did good, so let me be free. And then you say when Prospero shows up, but Prospero, from what I saw, just raised his head up from laying down on the table. So he was there the whole time? That goes into the whole thing about this whole movie being Prospero's dream, basically. He's always there. Oh, I hate that. I don't don't know. I just think that that's really boring. I don't know how else to interpret it, Megan. Fair. But Prospero has been there this whole time. And Ariel gives him the spiel about how he wants to be free. And he's done everything Prospero asks of him. And then Prospero, which is not a Derek Jarman choice. This is a Shakespeare thing. Yells at him and says, remember when Sycorax fucking put you in a tree and I rescued you? You owe me. And it's gross. I hate Prospero. Also, like, okay, if he owed you, he then did the things you asked. He doesn't owe you anymore. That's not a relationship. That's not a friendship. But then Derek Jarman makes it worse by being like, remember, Sycorax? The booby lady? The vagina? First vagina. Penises two and three? So we see Sycorax, who is, in Jarman's defense, a plus-size woman. Yeah, but I feel like she's supposed to be disgusting. Yes. So I don't know if I want to defend him. You are pretty right on that aspect. I just like seeing a plus-size person. Yes, I like plus-size people being in things, but I want them to be... Good characters. Viewed as... Yes, 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 yes. Worthy Not monsters. Yeah. That's fair. Again, Megan, I'm reading into it like, well, Sycorax was a cool lady who, like, people just didn't fucking understand. But all we actually see is that she's naked, looks very disheveled, and and is pulling people on chains that she's chained to. Well, Caliban does suckle at her teeth. Adult. I don't think that's good. (laughs) Oh, no, it's bad, Megan. Yeah, so I think that all that we're seeing is that she's bad and this is all bad yeah and we see naked ariel too and it's like gross and it's very disturbing i took no notes during the scene my jaw was dropped and i froze and i broke a little this is completely unnecessary and just here for shock value which like it succeeds at but also why because the only thing it does in my opinion 
is prove Ariel is in a better place right now, being a slave to Prospero, which is not a take I want to get from anyone. So Prospero threatens Ariel for speaking out. So that just adds to the Prospero suck shit list. Yeah. Fucking Ariel's just a cog in the machine. So. We're back to the drunk boys. They're ready to start having sex. Trinculo's penis is out. And then Prospero, this terrible, terrible person, adds one more terrible thing to the list and says, "Uh -uh Uh-uh-uh, we can't let this threesome happen. Ariel, you and I better start barking like we're mad dogs. Megan. Oh, you think he's doing it because he doesn't want them to try to kill him? Yes, Megan. No, he is just against this threesome. That's all I want in this film. I just want Trinculo to be happy. You don't start barking like a mad dog when a man's penis is out. Actually, you know, never mind. I redact my statement. Some people like that. As in Ariel, because they do their whole barking, but they're very happy with themselves. Ariel leans back and starts panting with his tongue out. So that's a scene. And then we go back to the old guys. These old guys are absolutely inessential to the plot that Derek Jarman wants to tell. Even though Derek Jarman was obsessed with this idea of this play being a play about forgiveness, He does not in any way spend any amount of time with these people that have wronged Prospero. So I don't give a shit about them or anything that they do. I don't think they deserve to be forgiven. I literally, by this point, have forgotten that they're the ones in the wrong. Yes. And I'm like, man, how are they going to forgive Prospero when those inconsequential forgiveness men come up? And then I remember that they're apparently the bad ones who we really don't know anything about. And then we cut back to the drunk boys again for, like, no reason other than to show that they were scared of the dogs. Which they showed us before. And then they do this elaborate pose that they just hold until the end of the shot. But it definitely feels, once again, like a stage production and they're waiting for the lights to drop and the scene to change and them to exit. And it's just strange feeling. Megan, let me tell you a little secret. Yeah. Prospero froze them. When? Then. Did he say that out loud? No. They just show up in the last scene in the same position and they unfreeze. I don't like that. I don't think you can do magic without showing magic being done. I saw the guys barking like dogs and heard dogs barking. Cool. That was magic. You can't just say, oh, I froze them. It was just off camera. You didn't see it happen. Yeah. No. They showed me freezing the old guys. Was that at the same moment? No, no, that was that's after. a different moment. Yeah. If they froze when the old guys froze, I'd accept it. But they didn't. So I don't accept it, Derek Jarman. So then the old men arrive at the mansion. And then they're scared by Ariel. And then little people come. And I'm like, okay. Why? Well, so at this point, Ariel's supposed to be a harpy. Yes. That costs way too much money. So let's just get some little people actors. So the harpy's supposed to scare them. Are the little people supposed to scare them? Because Derek Jarman, that's problematic. Yes, Megan. So here's the thing. This was around the era where casting a little person in your film was just as a gimmick or a monster or a not an actual character. See, my brain deletes that part of history, which is bad because we should address it instead. It's not like scary or weird or anything. They're just kind of dressed up like jesters a little. Yeah, like I was like, okay, these are like, fairy type creatures yeah so then they get frozen by cobwebs 
There's this really long shot of cobwebs and smoke, and I feel like Derek Jarman was like, this is my moment. This is the image, the central image of this film, but it's so boring that it uh, really fails, so I really hope that wasn't supposed to be the central image. All I can say is Ferdinand and Miranda are playing badminton in a different scene. And Ariel is... Fully in a pile of hay with just his face showing, and I call him Hayriel, and he is the actual mood. When I say Ariel's a mood in this film, I mean this moment. I love this. He's great. Him and Hay? Give me more of that. But we find out here that Prospero wants to change and accept Ferdinand and forgive everyone, and I don't know why. What has happened that has made Prospero change his mind? What growth has he had? Nothing, Megan. That's my only answer. Nothing has changed. There's no character progression. We don't get to hear him make a discovery. I hate it. It's not even a weak choice. It's an absence of a choice. Yeah, no choice. Worse than a bad choice. That's so sad. In the final scene, we have one last favorite Ariel moment, I think. Ariel goes to open a door and is like, I can't open it. Oh, wait, I'm a fairy. And just like phases through it. That's cute. Completely unnecessary, but like, okay. So I don't even remember if these old men are forgiven or not. I think they are. Prospero walks around them, points a sword at his brother. The actor stays very still. Good job. And then he just gives this long monologue that I stopped paying attention to because all I was focused on was if the actor who played his brother was going to keep staying still with a sword in his face. And he did. And I was like, end of scene. (laughs) I mentioned this a little bit before in the actor's corner, but when Derek Jarman was casting for Prospero, he specifically did not want to hire an actor to play Prospero because he thought he would make too much of the lines. How has that ever worked? I want someone to act in my movie, therefore I will not hire an actor. I want it to be realistic when they're saying things they'd never say in real life. So obviously I can't get someone who has acting experience. Actors train to make Shakespearean natural. natural. That's what they do. And the fact that he doesn't hire an actor to handle this means that a lot of Prospero's lines and plot points are just lost. Yes. Part of the reason why I don't think this is an accessible production let alone the issues that the technology itself had. If you're coming into this with no knowledge of The Tempest, you will leave with barely any knowledge of The Tempest. All of the plot points are either said in a way that the microphone doesn't pick up, or by someone who can't communicate the meaning of the lines. I always say, oh, you're trying to learn a play, you should watch a production of it. I would never suggest this production. No. It's not over yet, though. You gotta keep going. No, no, no. no. So he cast one non-actor, but he cast 7,000 little gay sailor boys to do a dance. I love this, Megan, because like a Shakespearean mask, it makes absolutely no sense. And it's supposed to be a celebration. The thing that's hilarious to me is like, so it's just all these gay sailor boys. And I'm like, okay, I get it. I see what you're doing. Gay. Also, the sea. Also, the sea. This is where Miranda comes in and says... Oh, brave new world. (laughs) And it's so silly. It makes no sense. No. And then a singer comes and sings Stormy Weather 
Yes, it's the woman that I mentioned in the beginning. It's her own song. She might be doing a cover out of it, but she's known for that song. And she just performs it around these gay boys. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why. There are songs in The Tempest. He moved the mask from a different scene to the end of the play. A mask that most people kind of cut mostly. Because it's completely unnecessary, as 99% of masks are. And probably was inserted because Shakespeare knew that people liked masks. This was the end of the Elizabethan era, and the Jacobian era was in full swing. And let me tell you, let me tell you, James the First, oft reported to be queer, loved a mask. He probably loved this scene. I love some mask. Listen, who doesn't love a mask? Me in most films. Yeah, no, it's fair. But, like, there's nothing wrong with this mask. No, it's it's, it's fine. It's fun. It's not offensive. No. It's just silly when Miranda's line is said to it. Ariel is freed. There's not much of a hullabaloo about no, it. No, he does this thing where he throws up flower petals, so they start raining from the sky, and he gives the least realistic smile I've ever seen in my entire life. And it is somehow completely expressionless, and there's no emotion behind it. Mm -hmm. And I now don't know how I feel about Ariel as a character. Yeah, it's weird. The couple gets married. They have a terrible kiss. Oh, it's so bad. And then suddenly everyone's gone and Prospero's asleep. Except Ariel's there. Ariel sits on the throne because Prospero's asleep. There's like a throne piece. Moves off the throne and then sings a little song again that's a little eerie. And then runs the fuck away. And I'm like, okay, are you afraid he's going to take it back? He's like, fair. Well, is the dream the thing that Ariel granted Prospero? Like, is the happy dream of a happy ending? See, this is what I don't like about this whole dream thing. Yeah. So is this real? I have a huge point to make about this. Do you want to go into it? Do you want to get into it? Because that's really the end of the play. Ariel leaves. Well, then we get a voiceover of we are such things as dreams are made of and we are rounded with a sleep. Which is from 4-1. It's Prospero's voice. Yes. Over sleeping Prospero. Weird. I get that the film is Prospero's dream. I understand it. The storm happens while he's asleep outside of the manor. Everything's blue and hazy like i mentioned before it does buy into everything that prospero does in the play a common interpretation of the tempest is that prospero is acting as sort of a storyteller in a meta sense in that he is the facilitator of events happening he causes the beginning of the play to happen, and... He allows people to get married. Yes, yes, well, yes, like, yeah. he's, he's writing, like, these romances, he makes a mask show up, like a writer would, and he acts like a playwright or somebody creating a world. I get that interpretation, that's one of my favorites for The Tempest, but the whole idea of it being his dream... It reeks of those storylines where they wake up at the end. And it was all a dream. Then what was the point? None of it happened. Did any of this happen? Is Ariel running away the only real thing? Or was that not even real? Who knows, Megan? I know that I said there were a lot of weak choices in this or lack of choices in this. I think if you ever imply that the entirety of the film that you just did was a dream, you have undone any choice you possibly made. 
Because those choices don't matter. What are you supposed to leave this film feeling or thinking? That it was a dream itself? Because the only thing I can think is you leave the film going, ah. Or, huh, artistic. But like you don't take anything away from that. No. You will forget it in the next week. Probably. Honestly, we watched this like two days ago and there are already scenes that I look at my notes and I go, I have no idea what was well, happening. Well, Megan, that's the point. Megan, he got you. Derek Jarman got you because uh, it was a haze. He got you. That's what he wanted. I don't know, Megan. Because here's the thing. <laughs> I don't hate this. No, like we've seen worse things. Yes, we've watched worse things and we've watched better things. And I think this falls like straight down the middle. If the whole point of this is that it was Prospero's dream and we're not supposed to know if anything happened, if this is Schrodinger's Tempest, it makes me furious. Why have we been talking this whole time? Why are we making an episode about nothing? And yes, there is something to be gleaned from the discussion of it being a nothing of a movie. All art is art and deserves discussion. And the Tempest is a nothing of a play, so I mean... (laughs) Anyway, that's the Tempest. I think that's it. I mean, do you have anything else you wanted to discuss, Megan? I mean, I've got something that I think William Shakespeare's The Tempest would say about Derek Jarman's The Tempest. Misery acquaints a man with strange bedfellows. Both, you know, because I did bedfellows because dream, and also, this movie's strange. Also, I feel miserable. Megan, what would you rate Derek Jarman's The Tempest? Much like... A character in a film waking up from a dream to find out that none of the film actually happened. I don't feel like I can even rate this. Because I don't have strong enough feelings to give it a low score. And I don't like it enough to give it a good score. And the more I think about it, the lower the score it would receive. So it's gonna get Schrodinger's score from Megan. How about you, Marquez? Mar- Marquez? Hey, Marquez? <sighs> oh. Oh. oh, Megan, hi. Hey, we've got to record an episode of Avant Bard. Oh, cool. What, what did we watch? Derek Jarman's The Tempest. Oh. Wait. <laughs> Zero out of ten. I think that's all we can handle today on Avant-Bard. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we will see you anon. Avant-Bard is created by Matthew James Marquez and Megan Charlow. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash avantbardpod. We would like to thank Riley Allen for the creation of our theme music, Cloverkin for our logo artwork, and everyone in the audience for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about AvantBard, you can visit us on all social media platforms at AvantBardPod.